now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May be seated. I'm sure you've probably seen the bumper sticker or t-shirt or meme that says, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. This saying has been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but it's highly unlikely that he actually ever said that, and he certainly didn't live it because he was preaching with words like all the time. <laughs> I think the phrase also unfortunately serves to perpetuate what I think is a rather unhelpful dichotomy that, that pits explicit verbal proclamation of the gospel against implicit, tangible manifestations of the good news of salvation. I think too often in the church's uh, history, uh, it seemed as though one could only either stand on a street corner and tell passers-by that Jesus saves, or stand on the street corner and pass out food to the poor and the hungry. But I think our readings this morning show us that this is a false dichotomy, and that explicit and implicit proclamations are necessary features of the Christian vocation to share the good news of Christ's salvation. So hence today we're continuing to think together about this epiphany theme of evangelism, of telling the world that God has become incarnate in Jesus Christ for our salvation and to bring us into a deep relationship with God. As our collect asks today, we look for grace to proclaim to all people the good news of Christ's salvation. And I think that what we see from our lessons this morning is that we do this proclamation verbally tangibly, individually, and corporately. That'll be on the test. <laughs> Verbally, tangibly, individually, and corporately. Let's uh, start with Nehemiah, our, our Old Testament reading today, where we, where we hear a, a verbal proclamation of the good news. Now, obviously, what occurs here is not an explicit proclamation that salvation comes through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Those events are still a few hundred years off. But I think it does uh, set a pattern for us followers of Christ for how we might verbally proclaim the good news. So in this vignette in, in Nehemiah, many of God's people who have been long exiled from Jerusalem have returned to join in the rebuilding and re-inhabiting of this, uh, this holy city. However, as the people return, it's become clear that the people have forgotten the good news of God's salvation that, that ought to have been at the center of their lives. So the people gather together in the public square with Ezra, their priest and spiritual leader, to hear from the law of Moses. The law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, which we read about in Exodus, was, I think, in fact, good news. Sometimes, perhaps, we contemporary Protestants have so absorbed the message from the 16th century that the law is ultimately insufficient that we end up thinking it wasn't good for anything. But I think that's not the case. The, the law was, for a time and for a people, the good news that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wanted to have a deep relationship with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the people of Israel weren't left adrift, not knowing how to interact with God, but God communicated clearly and directly to them how they might be able to have a relationship with him that would lead to their own individual and, and even community flourishing. So Ezra here explicitly proclaims the good news of God's salvation to the people by reading from the books of Moses himself. And then we hear later on in the story that others helped the people to understand the law while the people remain in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, 
with interpretation that gave the sense so the people could understand the reading. That's Nehemiah 8, 7 through 8. So we can see three principles from this story for how we might verbally proclaim the good news of God's salvation. First, Ezra relies on the actual reading of scripture. Like, literally, that's what they were doing all morning long, reading from God's word. And I think, in a sense, there's like a trust that's being exemplified here as we let God do God's work. God has communicated directly to us humans through scripture, God's written word. I had a, a parishioner a number of years ago who did a lot of work with the Gideons, who put the Bibles in the hotel rooms, you know. I used to think that was kind of odd. Like, are these Bibles some kind of, like, magical oracle that someone just, like, picks up and, like, zap, they get saved? Well, sometimes, yeah, that is kind of the case. I mean, maybe not really literally a magical oracle, but sometimes, led by the Holy Spirit, people have read these strategically placed Bibles, received it as a communication to themselves, and became followers of God. And these are the stories that my uh, parishioner had. So perhaps the first principle for evangelism, then, is to put people in direct contact with the word of God in scripture. Secondly, however, we also ought to come alongside people to help them understand what they're hearing in scripture. And this is what occurs later on in our story in Nehemiah. I'm also thinking here of the story in, in Acts 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Here this eunuch is, is reading Isaiah uh, and was understanding there was something significant what was going on there. There was something significant toward the end of leading him to have a deeper relationship with God, but it was still rather like unclear, and he, and he needed some help in understanding its full meaning. And that's where Philip stepped in and interpreted scripture for this guy, ultimately leading to his conversion and baptism. So explicit proclamation of the good news involves putting people in contact with scripture and coming alongside of them to help them to understand it. Thirdly, I think it's kind of interesting that this whole Jerusalem Bible study in Nehemiah takes place literally in the public square. I don't think this means that evangelism must only happen in a public square, as if personal private proclamation can't happen. I think this scene does invite us to think about where our squares before the Watergate are. I'm not quite sure what the modern equivalent of these squares are. Is it Adams Park here in Wheaton or Millennium Park? or even a Facebook group, without over-spiritualizing it, I hope, I might think that each and every one of us has our own public squares in which we engage. So whether that's work, or the home, or the gym, or the club, or the bar, or school, or wherever, those are for you. Those are places where the, the communication of the good news of God's salvation can occur. So wherever and whenever you find yourself, Put people in contact with scripture and help them to understand it. And these are three principles, I think, of verbal explicit proclamation of the gospel. We can also pivot to our reading from Luke this morning for instruction on implicit proclamation of the gospel. This is not to contradict what's going on in Nehemiah, but I think rather to, to complement and, and to complete this, these lessons. So in our reading this morning, Jesus has uh, just begun his public ministry, and in a sense, he's sort of like issuing a mission statement for his work. So what's Jesus' mission statement for his, his ministry? Well, he says it's to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who have been oppressed. And that could be a good bumper sticker, perhaps. Now, like a good mission statement, I think these items listed here aren't the... Um, 
the exclusive tasks for Jesus' mission, but they serve as principles. That is, Jesus didn't come only to heal blind people. He healed lepers and, and the lame and the deaf as well. But the idea is that part of Jesus' mission is to bring healing to those with physical ailments. And likewise, when Jesus says that his mission is to proclaim the good news to the poor, I don't think he means just that he wants to tell the poor that God loves them. He hopes to make them no longer poor. And clearly that's how the earliest Christians understood this mission, because they were pooling their resources in the book of Acts in order to ensure equity among the members of the church. So I think this passage then here in Luke 4 sanctions a perspective on the tangible, implicit proclamation of the gospel. If someone's hungry, giving them food proclaims the gospel. If someone's naked, giving them clothing proclaims the gospel. If someone's oppressed, giving them dignity and opportunity and a release from their oppression proclaims the gospel. For us then, whenever and wherever we join in these tangible acts, we join in the implicit proclamation of the good news of God's salvation. So we ask in our call for grace to proclaim to all people the good news of salvation. I think we do this explicitly and verbally, and we also do this implicitly and tangibly. I think we all individually have this vocation. So we ask in the colic individually for grace for ourselves to live out this calling faithfully. But our reading from 1 Corinthians provides us a, a bit of a clue about how we maybe fulfill this vocation not just individually, but also together as a community, corporately, in fact. For Paul's body metaphor, as we heard, his body metaphor for the church shows us that every part of the body participates in the work of the other parts of the body in virtue of being members of that very same body. Now, maybe you get a little uncomfortable when I call this uh, proclaiming the good news uh, corporately. You know, maybe you don't want to have corporate talk. Maybe you'd cringe if I refer to All Souls as a corporation. We're not talking about All Souls LLC or anything, but, but our English word corporate derives from the Latin corpus, which just means body. So corporately, we are a body, and in fact, the body of Christ. Here again, uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for just as the body, and here he means the physical human body, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. So Paul has this rich image of individual Christians being like individual body parts. And then you can almost kind of like think about our, our own bodies, that the parts of our bodies are not like isolated from one another. They're not like doing their own thing. They all participate in the bodily actions that we are performing. So for instance, if I'm out shoveling my driveway, which I did about four hours ago, it's not like my hands and feet were doing that while my torso was back in bed, which is where it wanted to be. But each of my parts were contributing in their own way to this bodily activity. It might seem like when I'm shoveling my driveway, my ears are kind of just like along for the ride, but just in virtue of being parts of my body, even my ears were participating in this activity of shoveling my driveway. So I think we can probe this image of the church as the body a bit further, uh, as the body of Christ, the corpus, the corporation of Christ that proclaims the good news verbally and tangibly. And can we even imagine that we all are joining together and participating in the activities of one another? 
is think about it this way. So, so we here at All Souls are a, a small segment of the body of Christ, but we're also a body in our own right, a subsidiary, corpus maybe. And we're all, we're all blessed uh, in this parish to be in a part of a body that has individual members doing all kinds of wonderful verbal and tangible expressions of the gospel. What I'd like to think about is about how, how we all participate in one another's vocations by being members of the same body. I think, for instance, of, of uh, how many Wheaton College faculty and staff we, we have here. I think that the proclamation of the good news occurs verbally and tangibly there and, and through there. Only a few of us souls are physically on campus or in a classroom, but in virtue of being one body, I think our whole parish participates in that gospel mission. Or we have some souls who work at Christianity Today. I think the good news is proclaimed through that institution. Well, since we're joined together as one body, we're all participating in the proclamation that occurs there. Well, there are countless other gospel works that you all participate in, and hence that we all participate in. It doesn't have to be a specific line item on the All Souls, Souls on Mission budget to count as a mission of all souls. Anytime any of us is engaged in the work of proclaiming the good news, we all join together in that work by being one body with one another. Someday I'd love to get a list together of all the places where All Souls parishioners work for the proclamation of the good news, whether that's your day job or a volunteer opportunity or even just through a donation. These aren't individual acts of verbal or tangible proclamation. They're corporate acts because we are all parts of one body. So wherever and whenever you are proclaiming the good news of Christ's salvation in whatever form, the body goes with you. We all go with you. And we all join in this proclamation with you. We ask God this week to give us grace to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation. We're called to do this verbally, with words and explicit communication of the good news, which can take place publicly as we help people to understand what God has said in Scripture. We're also called to do this tangibly, following Jesus' mission statement of implicitly communicating the good news through acts of service to the poor, the oppressed, and the hurting. We're each individually called to do this, but we're also parts of one body, and so we participate in all that every other part of the body does. Hence, we can preach the gospel at all times, verbally, tangibly, individually, and corporately. Amen.